I guess I have. To, I know we're not supposed to talk about politics, or John always gets angry. But wow, okay, Santorum. Yeah, but he's not here. Now. He's not yeah. here. So is, this is kind of funny because Santorum won like three states yesterday, right? On the and I don't right. know, including good old Minnesota. Yeah, how does how does that happen? I, you know, I was pretty baffled by that. I mean, I don't really get into the horse race politics stuff that much, but uh, I, I thought the general consensus was that Santorum was kind of done, right? Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Except for the Midwest, apparently. Like, he has seemed to have, like, a hardcore following. And You uh, know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wonder, I, I'm not good at this prognostication stuff, but I wonder how much of it, too, is more of a... I don't know how much crazy Santorum support. Like, I just I haven't seen any of it anywhere. And granted, you know, I'm in the Twin Cities, which is kind of a kind of an exception. But like, I wonder how much of it is people don't like Newt and don't like Mitt. You know? Yeah. Well, I think people feel like, especially uh, Romney. It's the he's the kind of middle of the line conservative, and it's it's interesting to think that people think that somebody like Santorum is even viable, like in a political. <laughs> You know, right. in in the general election, like there's, I just don't see how. I mean, Obama's just going to wipe the floor with him. Um, and I'm not saying this because you know Obama's support is so strong right now, but it's just like Santorum's views are so to the right. Uh, it's unbelievable that, you know, he's doing as well as he is, which is you know, even crazy. But isn't it also? And I think it breaks down differently based on caucuses versus uh, primaries. But it's just the people who show up who get to decide these things. Yeah, and if you ha- have a well-organized network in the state that's really conservative, you can put a lot of people there who don't represent the state or the Republicans at large even, but represent themselves and do a good job at it. So if, if Romney's kind of seen as the the presumptive winner, but no one's really excited about him, but people are still excited about Santorum as their ideological champion, then I think in some states they have the opportunity to, to kind of take things over. Well, see, I, I expect some flukes like that to happen, but he's now won four states. Iowa, well, Minnesota, Missouri, Missouri doesn't count. Yeah, and Wait, why Minnesota. Missouri, why does Missouri? Not it was count? a non-binding thing. Because oh, I think Minnesota kind of does right, a similar right, thing right. where they they just elect delegates to go to the convention, but the actual winner on that night, it's not official. Yeah, somewhat. So it's it, really Colorado, which has a gigantic network of megachurches and military that kind of bolster up people further to the right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that Santorum seems to, like, preach, both, like, this, like, ideological conservatism and this, like, we should go to war with Iran. And I heard a debate with him where he was basically, like, talking about sending, you know, ships to Cuba. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe that this is, like, a viable... He's pretty hawkish. Yeah. But... I, I, Cuba is a really weird target, like... Wait, with, in, during the Florida <laughs> debates, you know, and the, the, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, the sure. candidates were debating about whether or not, like, Castro was going to go to hell or not. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> I was like, delightful. are you kidding me? So this does, oh, good. Well, that's like all, the only times when Ron Paul sounds like he's, you know, kind of a sane person. He's like, I can't believe we're talking about invading another country. Do we not have enough wars going on? Like, it's not even funny that we're, that you guys are even putting up these positions as though, like, we could afford another war or that we should just have wars with people we don't like all the time. And, uh, you know, Santorum's just like, I just think you're wrong. You know, people like Castro and people like, you know, the Brazilians and, you know, the other socialist uh, leaders of Latin America need to be told that we're not scared to from a fight or something. You know, and it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe that's that's a viable political position. But right. Well, I mean, there's there's two things like one. I, I read somebody I was reading referenced this as like a 
Barry Goldwater esque election for the Republicans, and that definitely kind of rings. I mean, I yeah, there's some problems with the comparison, but it definitely rings true in the ideological sense you're pointing out, and it also. Man, it speaks to uh, what we could call a crisis of masculinity going on right now in yeah. the country because I, up to and include, especially with those like some of those Super Bowl commercials and not just the right, but I'm thinking of like that Clint Eastwood one where he's going to like punch America's way back to prosperity or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, it's the sort of the mascu- the like masculine posturing at the Republican debates is just absurd. Yeah, the Clint Eastwood commercial is pretty interesting because he's like, yeah, America, <laughs> we'll get back up and roar. Yeah. You know, it was like, it's so weird. Uh, but- yeah, well, I mean, who's more, you know, who's more masculine than Clint Eastwood? Even, dude, even at whatever, like, 97 or whatever he is, I'm still pretty certain he could take me in a fist fight, or I would at least be too scared to engage in one way. Yeah, I'll just stare at you and grumble for a while, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm. That's what his career is based on. Yeah. So that was like um, remotely sociological, right? Politics. <laughs> I love it. That should be. That should really be the tagline. Or we just found an episode title. <laughs> remotely <Remotely-ism>. sociological. <laughs> right. Well, for me, it's interesting because you know, being out here back in California and teaching, it's like I'm suddenly realizing how much of a kind of west coast snobbery there is towards the midwest sometimes oh you're just now noticing that well i kind of knew it but maybe i, I believed in it at the time and then living in minnesota for a while when i pick up on my students say things like oh i just think we're more advanced in the midwest like one of my students said that the other day when i was talking about uh rural america and what kind of issues are you know uh, prevalent in rural america and one of the students was like yeah we don't have these issues in california because we're a little bit more advanced than the rest of the country and i was like what do you mean by advanced it sounds really uh problematic just to say that and then you know the santorum sweep of the midwest states uh reconfirms that maybe you know there's some extreme conservative views not that that's bad or anything but it does you've uh you've definitely hit on by (laughs) far one of my favorite talking points in in the world but i'll say i mean i think the thing people forget or people don't understand or something like this sort of the um I mean, man, like, the reason Republicans, like, are able to win so well is because they just flog this idea of these, like, coastal elites who look down on you. Because the coasts are full of people who look down on us, man. I mean, like, I remember back in 2004, after Bush was reelected, and I was reading in the New York Times, which is weird because I don't usually do that, but there was one of those, like, how did this happen articles, you know? And I remember there was a direct quote from somebody that was like, you know, well, we here out on the coast are just exposed to a bit more, so I think we understand how the world operates a bit better than, like, the people in the Midwest who voted for them. And I was just like, I want to vote for George Bush now, you know? I mean, it's just like the most condescending attitude in the world. And, you know, I'll point out, say, my home state of Iowa legalized gay marriage, California. How progressive (laughs) have you been, Mr. Ronald Reagan State? Like, oh, man, it's totally unjustified in every way, shape, and... ah. Now I'm just going off the rails. I'll come back to something (laughs) logical in a few moments. No, it's 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 good stuff. I didn't I didn't notice it before, but being back here, like for instance, when people ask where we where we lived, we'll say Minnesota, and people do this thing, like you know, when you meet somebody new and you don't really pay attention to their name, um, like mm-hmm. this is the same thing. They don't pay attention to the name of the state, so they always like, oh yeah, that's cool. You lived in that M word state, 
and they'll say things like Missouri or Mississippi, <laughs> <laughs> and they'll, they'll just bring it up. Oh yeah, Arturo went to school in Mississippi, and I was like, uh, no, Minnesota. They're like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, no, not whatever. You're not listening to the end of the word. Like it's a different state, you know. And there is just this like, I don't know, cultural cultural blind spot <laughs> you know there's like chicago and then there's new york and uh maybe some other cities here and there and then it's just like small town iowa city right no um, i mean they literally view us as a geographical inconvenience between <laughs> new york and la i mean <laughs> yeah so it's uh but it's been nice in my class though because i've been using the midwest as like you know my anthropological stay in minnesota and like the things i learned and we were talking it's a theory course and we were talking about de tocqueville and uh talking about this idea of free institutions and tocqueville's fascination with the american um kind of like self-interest rightly understood how americans are really communal and i said uh you know one of the things that's interesting about the midwest is it's it snows and it you know snow is this white substance it's qu quite cold and uh you know it's all all over the place and uh, people shovel their sidewalks, like even if the sidewalks is not necessarily right in front of their house. And it, it really like – I didn't realize that it wasn't the city shoveling sidewalks, but it was like actually your neighbor shoveling your sidewalks. And like in particular because I never did it, my neighbors would just do it for me. You know, just out of a courtesy, and sometimes they would even do my driveway. <laughs> I just thought it was just like, you know, some the city was coming out and shoveling the snow. And uh, I was like, you know, would that stuff even fly here in California? Would we ever shovel each other's snow? And I was like, I don't think so. You know, there's something to be said about um, a communal spirit. Maybe that's what Tocqueville was picking up on. You know, so I, I've been trying to do some reverse uh, stigma of of the Midwest to the best of my abilities, but we'll see how that goes. To be fair, even though I agree with the larger point you're making. The city will ticket you and fine you if you don't shovel your sidewalk. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. They will. They well, they will shovel you. They will shovel it for you, but they will charge you an exorbitant amount for it. Right. Yeah. Well, see, my neighbors are still being nice, though. You know, they're. Yeah. Like, oh no, no, no. Yeah, yeah no. The neighborly the thing point. is definitely true. It rarely comes to that because, like, in in uptown, when there were huge blizzards, I would walk. If you were walking somewhere, walking around the neighborhood, you would find groups of college kids and punk rock kids all around helping people dig out of their cars or pushing cars or jumping cars whatever people needed like i walked three blocks one night and i helped like seven or eight people yeah and i wasn't that that's not special i'm not trying to make myself sound good everyone was doing that so right there's definitely I, a coming together around that i was actually trying to it was on one of the the job visits i was trying to explain to people why like my pop sociology theory of why people in who live in minnesota are so nice but it's like i mean it's kind of like the way like when there's a heavy snow or like really bad weather it's like the way people come together like after some sort of natural disaster or something you know <laughs> yeah even though it's like not on that level yeah but, but it's just yeah. like like you're saying with like stuck cars like there is more like you know, I mean, Minneapolis is like any other city, and it's all nice and segregated and whatnot, and you rarely see – you don't normally see too many inner, like, racial or really even intercultural, like, communication or anything going on in the streets. But, man, like, people helping each other with cars and shoveling and stuff, it's like a Frank Capra movie of, like, American togetherness going on, you know, and you're kind of forced to by the elements. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of like cultural trauma being revisited every season, you know, <laughs> with every uh, snowstorm. And I, it was just kind of funny being in the Midwest, like in Minnesota, like 
you guys inviting me to go out and it's like are you crazy it's like a disaster outside but like you have to go out because otherwise you would never go out and then being in these bars you just feel like everybody's huddled and kind of talking about the weather i mean that that seemed to be like a big part of all all conversations started ended with the weather i felt like and so it was something to connect with you know we all had that shared experience of almost dying on the way to the bar so and having to face it again on the way out so yeah exactly (laughs) book ends the evening yep Yes, guess it doesn't really really work that way in SoCal, eh? Like, oh my God, can you believe it's sixty two degrees outside today? I could barely make it here. Yeah, it was it was beautiful today. It was sixty five degrees and sunny, uh, and uh, we're like, ah oh, man. Though I have to say, for this being my last real full winter in Minnesota, this has been the like weakest winter I Seriously. will ever experience in my life. It has been insane. Wow. There's not oh. even snow on the ground right now. It is February, and there is no snow on the ground. That's weird. I was I there in December, and it was like being in California at night. And that's it was really weird. Yeah, and then yeah. coming back here in January, and just being like, it's January, there's no snow, the sun has been shining for the whole week, and it hasn't gone below 60. Yeah, it's two days really ago, unsettling. it hit 40 uh-huh. degrees in February in Minnesota. Wow. It was, I mean, it's a, it's insane. It's there's. And do you remember so, last winter? I bet you know somewhere Al Gore is cackling in the light. <laughs> yeah, last winter was like one of the worst ever. Absolutely. Funny, I actually brutal. saw a comparison the other day in the paper. So the average snowfall in the Twin Cities in December and January is about twenty four inches. Last year we got fifty inches in that period, and this year we barely got eleven in that two month period. And it was yeah. like well above freezing every day. It didn't snow, so they all melted. Yeah, every sidewalk was covered in a couple inches of ice. Because it just wasn't going anywhere. No, what we have done is just comically proven Arturo's observation about how Minnesotans <laughs> continually talk about the weather. Because the second you mention the weather, we're like, let me tell you but about the weather. Californians <laughs> do too, I've noticed. You think so? Here, the re- weather is so remarkably consistent that any slight deviation, yeah, the impact is so much more. So if it touches the lower 50s or even the 40s, people freak out. And that's all they'll talk about. If it rains, people freak out, and that's all they'll talk about. Right, but I think the difference is in like around here, people talk about weather like every day, regardless of what it is. Because it's like you know, there's big stretches where it's pretty horrible every day. So. Right, right. Yeah, like the newscasters here, like the local news, like there's it's pointless to listen to the weather. I mean, it's the same thing every single day, and unless there's a storm coming, and you're pretty aware of that fact already, but. In Minnesota, it was like kind of important to pay attention to the weather, like what's going on tomorrow, or you know how cold is it going to get. Uh, but here, it's just not something you readily think about. So I don't know. It doesn't unify us, I guess. It's one of the disadvantages. some sort of uh, Super Bowl postmortem we need to do. I mean, it feels like it's, you know, the the largest television event in the history of mankind, you know, was what, a couple days ago. feels like we'd maybe be remiss not to uh, touch on that. For example... were pretty bad, or weren't that great this year. Nothing that, you know, stood out for me. It was like, oh, that was a really funny commercial. So... Clearly, that's I only, why I watch. <laughs> <laughs> I only got to watch the last five minutes 
because I was teaching during it. But uh, how were you teaching during the Super Bowl? <laughs> I know, man. Did you have any uh, reflections on the Super Bowl, Jesse? Oh, I was going to go in a different direction with the conversation. Uh, there was a the Occupy movement came to the Super Bowl. There's a bit of a dust stuff about that. Oh, really? I was yeah, so Indiana had just passed the so-called right to work law, or one of the so-called right to work laws um, that we all know are not not about your right to work, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so there was a pretty big contingent of uh, like labor and Occupy people outside the Super Bowl doing Occupy the Super Bowl. Um, and there is the classic dust up of you know this day isn't about politics or whatever. Um, despite the fact that I believe did not David Petraeus flip the uh, coin to start the game? Um, oh, did he really? I believe so. I missed it, but that was what I was told. Uh, well, he's not a that, politician. Of course, that, of course, <laughs> is not political at all. No. Oh. Um, you know, but uh, they were, and, and you know, uh, to be fair, the NFL Players Association did release a statement condemning Indiana's passage of the law. Um, and so they were trying to sort of, you know, classic movement style of trying to piggyback off of the uh, media that was already there obviously did not get much coverage but uh you know it, it, that kind of reminds me a little bit but it, i don't want to deviate from this occupy stuff oh, so what, what happened what happened afterwards they was there any kind of protest or was there well so they were demonstrating outside the front gates um but you can imagine the type of people who can afford to go to the super bowl probably not really big occupy fans <laughs> um so it was not, uh, I mean, but that's also kind of part of the point of demonstrating the Super Bowl, right? I mean, you know, it's a classic example of like, you know, there's no actual football fans allowed inside the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all corporate sponsorship and, you know, very much one percenters, if you will. Um, right. But I mean, you know, I think it turned out, it ended up just being a rather, you know, standard, you know, stand outside with picket signs and handout literature kind of thing. So, I mean, there wasn't like some sort of dramatic confrontation. Um but, you know, the symbolism of it. Right. Well, there was a pretty interesting story on NPR about the stadium that I guess Indianapolis built, not necessarily for the Super Bowl, but it's not unrelated that they built it right before they were looking for cities. Well, it's kind of a deal these days, right? If you build a new stadium, you get the Super Bowl or uh, World Series. Or, yeah. Oh. So I guess this new stadium costs $600 million. And they had this economist <laughs> talking about, you know, is it worth it? You know, in terms of like, you know, you get a bunch of people that come to town and, you know, they're spending money on dinners and there's some sp special taxes. And the economist is like, uh, uh, oh, no, it it'll take them about 35 years to pay off that stadium. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stadiums are I mean, that's always the joke. Like they're sold as this like great investment for the town, but they are never I, I mean, they're never profitable. You know, well, they're never a net profit. They had to knock down an older stadium to build this new stadium and they still owe sixty million dollars on the old stadium that doesn't exist. Oh yeah. <laughs> so stadium well, I mean, financing leads to all those kind of but see, tricks sort of that were set classic. in place decades ago. But I mean it's actually uh I don't know if, if either of you read Dave Zyron. He's a really good he's like a sports political commentator, uh classic comment combination but uh he wrote a really good piece about how like uh both the nfl and major league baseball are essentially using like have you read naomi clown's shock doctrine mm -hmm. like they're essentially doing that with like modern urban cities where they're um 
you know, rushing in and kind of like trying to neoliberalize and privatize through these stadium buildings. And then they hold the threat of leaving town exactly. over you, essentially force like exactly going on with the Vikings right now. Like, oh, well, L.A. wants a team. So you better give us six hundred million dollars of public money for a stadium that won't return anything to the community or will leave, you know, and then and it's not only that, but then you can't build in any types of protections for workers. You can't, you know. Um, for the NFL bylaws actually prohibit the public ownership of any teams beside the Packers who are grandfathered in, you know, and that kind of thing. So, uh, rather, uh, bald face example of public money flowing directly into private pockets. Yeah. No, it's going on here too in Sacramento. The Kings have been trying to, are, are there rumors that they're going to move next year to Anaheim or Anaheim was going to take another, uh, one of the Northern California teams and, People here are like, you know, donating money to a stadium fund and stuff like that. And it's like, man, we're we're a bankrupt city, and this is what we're. <laughs> Oakland is doing the same thing with the A's and the uh, and the Raiders because the A's want to move to their own stadium in Santa Clara, where the Niners are going to move as well. And, and it's funny here because it it gets a, a town pride here. It's like if we lose the state, if we lose the NBA, if we lose our NBA team, like we'll just be a crappy town, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, newsflash, we're kind well, of a crappy town. Anyway. Well, you see it, but that's why it's so important too. Like you see the, um, uh, you saw the same, seeing the same thing here where a lot of the like senators who are pushing for the new stadium, which is like, or, you know, Congress people in general, uh, which is kind of a difficult thing to do in this economic climate. They keep talking about like, if, if we lose our designation as like a four sport city, you know, like we have all of the big four. If we lose that, like we're not a cosmopolitan city anymore, you know, and it's, and you're exactly right. It's the cities that are definitely not seen as cosmopolitan cities that have to worry about this, right? Like, you know, I mean, well, the Yankees have their own money, but like, you know, it's hard to imagine like the Mets or like the Jets or something holding New York City hostage for tons of public money for a new stadium, you know? Yeah. And these things are like behemoth costs. I mean, like the cost projections for anything that they talk about here is always just like, are you kidding me? Like we're firing police officers and closing down homeless shelters and we're talking about like a $800 million complex. Like how on earth are we, you know, able to afford that and not afford other things? But, you know. If I were to be really cynical about it, I might also say we have a rather skewed set of priorities regarding social spending. Yeah, so that's why I love that there's an Occupy, you know, movement outside of the Super Bowl about, uh, you know, we can't afford this, we can't afford that, but we can afford, you know, not the Super Bowl. I mean, that's an, a, not a political thing at all. This is just a wholesome sport that everybody can come together and enjoy, you know. But right. Like, I mean, I'm sure, like, the politician who brought in that stadium or who brought in the Super Bowl, like – gets to win out you know like oh they're get to know to be known in indianapolis as the person who brought the super bowl oh and sure yeah feels great but like what about the person that comes after that person has to like you know lay off Pay the for fire it. department yeah so that they're paying for this you know behemoth thing in yeah. the little town yeah. i was actually pleased to see uh another local story the uh the athletic director here at the u like left his position but is going to stay on as like an advisor to the athletic department and will continue to make his full salary which is like nearly 400 grand a year as well as all sorts oh, of first benefits. yeah yeah and wow. uh and it must be pointed out he did a terrible job as the athletic director but uh, he got a stadium bill so much yeah that he did um but i was it was actually refreshing to see a couple like state reps um from both parties said like after this was announced called out 
publicly called out the U and said, hey, you can't, you come to us saying, you know, oh, it's a crisis and we need money. And then you got all this money sitting around for this guy, you know? Uh, and I mean, it was probably just more political grandstanding than anything, but at least somewhat refreshing to hear mainstream politicians call people on that. Yeah, it's funny. When I, um, I took the social work class in St. Paul and one of the days they asked us to go to the state capitol to like, listen to you know the the state uh state house debate stuff and it was the day that they were debating some move where basically i guess one of the ways that the u financed the stadium was that it sold some of its land uh the state allowed the university to sell some of its um holdings of land for a hundred million dollars that helped them finance the stadium and uh, i was there listening to the you know the i don't know what you call it but like basically when they're voting on something there's a chance for somebody to to do the dissenting vote and he gives a speech and it was a republican guy and i wish i knew who it was who who had like a counter proposal and he's like you know i i understand that the u needs a hundred million dollars you know for it's all different projections but i propose that we spend a hundred million dollars to build a new building for the english department and a new building for computer science, you know, and he listed all these things that the U should spend instead of uh, a stadium, you know, that he was willing to sign off on, but not, uh, you know, let, you know, they don't need a new stadium or whatever the argument was. And I was like, wow, that was a pretty cool uh, jab at the U. So sometimes politicians have some relevant things to say. I'm glad that that's a conclusion we came to out of this. We, we have defended the modern institution of American politics. It works. I have to, uh, on the local tip, I have to, to give props to uh, a lot of sociologists and some other people who worked with the uh, graduate student government when they were trying to build the stadium for the U, who, without their work, it would have been much worse for all the students. So the students were going to get totally obliterated by them doing what they wanted to build that if they hadn't stood up, so props to them. <laughs> I don't know if they want their names mentioned to our four listeners, but yeah, they, I feel uh, like it should be uh, it should be noted because the whole process of that was really disingenuous and hypocritical. In a, in a well, I don't want to rant, so I'll stop there. But so we should to, say something about that's not so Midwest centric. I to to finish up the Super Bowl discussion uh, as as a Giants fan, it was it was a beautiful thing to see. Again. I imagine that was a, I, you know, as not a Giants fan, but as a Patriots absolute hater, uh, it was also quite delightful to watch. Yeah. Though the enemy, I, I the enemy say, is my friend. Yeah, I must say, though, uh, you know, speaking of the uh, hyperbolic theatrics of the Republican convention, they could be topped maybe only by the hyperbolic reactions of the general sports reporting world to the Super Bowl. Because since this has happened, I've been reading all these articles, or not reading them, but seeing headlines for them that uh, talking about like, oh, Tom Brady's overrated, or oh, maybe he was never a good quarterback in the first place, or oh, blah blah blah. And it's like the man went to five Super Bowls, dude. Yeah, like, won three. And he of them. lost two of them. <laughs> yeah, he won three of them, and the other two he barely lost after like amazing plays from the other team. Like, did like how how could he go from being like? first ballot hall of famer to a sham after like one game in which he played well you know like i mean i hate the man but like you gotta like this doesn't make him bad at his sport you know yeah or like wes welker who i'm no patriots fan but 
there are very few people who are as dependable as he was. And now he's persona non grata in Massachusetts. It's ridiculous. Did you see some company as sort of a publicity stunt? Yeah, the Butterfingers. Yeah, like 100 pounds or something of Butterfingers in Harvard Square or some other prominent place in Boston. Yeah, Copley Square, I think. Yeah, Copley Square, there you go. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's sort of the same thing. Um, had a but this is the trap, time. right? Like, I like talking about this, and I enjoy being a Vikings fan and a Giants fan, but pro sports is so corrupt that you can't. I can't ever come to p- absolute peace with the fact that I'm into football. Because <laughs> it's such a waste of public funds and such an insult to the public good. Yes, this is quite true. It is definitely the... Uh, uh, the difficulty of a of a sporting fan, you know. I was gonna try to come up with an impassioned defense, but I think you're right that it's just it's one of the very difficult things to come to peace to. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it it's it's nice to have a sports team that does build community in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a source of local pride. All those other things you could throw at it, but if I had the choice of my city having a football team or an extra couple billion dollars to play with. I'll take the money probably. It's true. But I mean the problem, but that's another thing. It's kind of like, again, you know, to bring it back to the the politics and the occupy and the whatnot. I, I mean, the problem is not with the sport, right? The problem is with these absurd leagues and ownerships that are, you know, demanding hundreds of millions of dollars in public funds without giving anything back and holding cities hostage and blah, blah. blah. But like, that's not, the sports fault it's not the players fault you know it's like it, well i think when you say pro sports you're implying that it's it's yeah the league the businesses the owners right yeah players associations and, everything and so yeah but i mean but so that's i think just further complicating the picture is that like you know it's nothing about like the game or the people i mean you know sure they're all overpaid and whatnot but uh I mean, in football, they're risking their lives, so it's kind of worth it. But, I mean, you know, yeah, but so it's only the ownership. And it's kind of like, you know, there's so much wrong with, like, academia, but, you know, I'm part of that, too. I mean, there's cert- at a certain point, you have to recognize that, like... <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, I mean, everyone's complicit. In it, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's a, not a great parallel, but I just mean, at a, at a certain point, like, it's... Man, with modern Western capitalism, it's hard to find something that isn't pretty dang tainted you know and so it's easy i think it's easy to point to pro sports but so many other facets of our i mean i'm using an apple computer presumably made in one of those sweatshops where people are committing mass suicide because the working conditions are so horrible but like pretty much all computers are made in such situation you know like i'm not going to be able to get a computer that's not unless i make it myself and i'm not smart enough you know um so it's just not to say like a throw your hands up kind of thing or but it's just that it's easy to pick on pro sports, I guess, in that sense, but True. I know that's ain't more particularly corrupt than many, many other, you know, insidious business practices. It doesn't make them less deserving as a target, though. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just because it's easy doesn't mean you you shouldn't stop. Yeah, quite fair. Quite fair. Well, I believe we've agreed to agree. <laughs> uh, Is this it, a natural breaking point for the segment, perhaps? Oh, that was exactly where the music comes in. Tell us what you think. Email podcast at the societypages.org. I've been wanting to get into a fight with someone about certain topics, but I don't like know. Like a if fist it's fight? Oh. No, just into a screaming match. Let's do it. What do you. What do you yeah, I want to <laughs> well, it's, it's about. Uh, 
It's about sure. occupies, and that's a topic that we've dealt with quite a bit. So, well, what is your? Uh... We'll, we'll see really... if, if the argument is worthy of delving back into the topic. I really don't understand what Occupy Oakland is doing, yeah, and I think a... I think it's going to end up really bad. <laughs> and that's it's not really. I mean, I want someone to try and defend it, and then I'll tear into them. I don't have a, a much of an argument. Let's let's uh, break it down. Why are you? What's going on in Oakland? I mean, people might not know. So Oakland, Oakland was the West Coast Occupy group to to jump to the forefront of the movement after a brutal crackdown by the Oakland Police Department of one of their first big events, which was just a, a big protest. Where that's they where used, the Marine was critically injured, right? That's the one, yeah. Scott Olson, who was a, a yep. Marine, got hit in the head with a gas, uh, a tear gas canister. And I believe he's recovered decently since then, so that's... Yeah, but he was uh, pretty severely injured, I mean. Cracked skull and all that. So after that, a ton of money and attention came to Occupy Oakland. And since then, they've kind of become the most visible, most active yeah, by far uh, Occupy most group active. In, in California and once the winter hit in the country. But oh, recently, yeah. they've been doing things that I, I... I've always had misgivings about them because it's Oakland. And Oakland, as I'm sure people know by reputation, has a ton of problems, not the least of which is their very ineffective city government and very militarized police force. Like police brutality is just endemic here. Um, and, and that first incident brought those into, into bold relief. And that was kind of a good thing, but s- there's also the fact that Oakland is a really poor struggling city who had to f- let go of half its police force, who has to cut back on a bunch of social services because there's no more state aid. It can't really handle what the Occupy people are doing. And I think the Occupy thing in the long run is having worse consequences. And I realize that some people might say, well, this is showing Oakland that the way they're doing things has to change. And the only way that people seem to be getting across is through these violent actions. But I'm also cynical about the kind of, I don't think Occupy Oakland is actually bringing about change. Well, I mean, I don't, you know, first of all, well, when you say the violent actions, it's a pretty loaded way to talk about Occupy Oakland because there's a lot of, I mean, there's a fair amount of question of how violent Occupy Oakland has been versus how violent, say, the Oakland PD has been, um, or also that several, it's a fair amount of it is pointing to maybe several incidents have been well oversold, um, but also you know it's a it's a broad and diverse movement, right? And that's part of the problem. I mean, it's not like that's you know, part of the problem in like a lot of ways. General counsel said let's break some stuff you know it's been you know small groups affiliated loosely with it as everyone is um but i have to say i don't know if it, you know this is maybe to 21st century media but actually i've gotten almost all of my information on occupy oakland from boots riley uh he writes these boots just, riley of the coup if people know hip-hop yep uh he right he's been incredibly involved in the occupy oakland movie. yeah he led the uh the two attempts to shut down the port Right. Both of which were semi-successful. And uh, and he's been writing these really great Facebook posts um, about it, but just like really well-reasoned explanations of why, you know, he supports certain movement tactics and others and, and kind of following it. And, uh, you know, and he's talked a lot about this. He's been rather resistant to uh, some of the violence used, not because he's anti-violent, but because he 
also thinks it's counterproductive in this particular instance. Yeah, um, and and I don't want to. Maybe I misspoke saying violence, but there's been these increasingly destruction of private property is really what we're talking about here and other sorts of things that they've been like, I understand the movement has to do things its own way, but there's also understanding that you're in a certain social context. And when you break into city hall and, you know, a bunch of your members get filmed burning the flag and stomping on it. I mean, that's just, that's just dumb. Well, yeah, that's dumb. But that's the thing too. I mean, this wasn't like... I mean, part of it, I think, is that's kind of an unfair criticism of Occupy Oakland because that's like saying, you know, I mean, that's attributing the actions of a few to the intentions of the whole. And that certainly wasn't something that, say, the Occupy Oakland General Council endorsed, right? They did after the facts. Or General Committee, sorry. Um, It really endorsed the burning, stopping of the American They didn't endorse it, but they didn't say it. I mean, they're tied into the media game just as much as the rest of the media is just in a weird way where they have less access, they have less voice, but it's kind of, it's become this zero sum game where they, I think any Occupy movement has a really tough time admitting its problems or talking about things that didn't work because that'll give too much to what they see as their opposition. Well, and I think that's where they got caught into it. But I think that's, I mean, yeah, I think but there's a lot the of movement... this discussion going on within the movement, but there's also a sense of like solidarity outside of the movement, right? Sure. So I mean, so there's a difference between like your public statement being like, you know, we won't condemn the actions of people who felt this was necessary or whatever, and internally saying like, "Whoa, I don't think that was a very smart idea. We shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff," you know? Sure, sure. So I just want to throw that out there. I mean, because I yeah. totally agree. I think I think that was a really stupid thing of those people to do, and I think it's horribly counterproductive. My, but I don't think it, I mean, you know, I think it's yeah, I see your to, point. My other piece is, and this is a bit unfair too, in that, well, it isn't. It isn't. I don't know why they're not doing this across the bay in San Francisco. You know. Oh, you mean like choosing like, other cities? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, don't shit where you eat. But, yeah, you know, there are problems in Oakland that need to be addressed. And I am very, you know, anyone who's a sociologist is going to be happy that structural inequality and structural racism and police brutality and things like that are getting addressed. And, and maybe some minds are changing on that. But they seem to have lost the component about, you know, banking and money and politics. And all that ah. stuff, the Oakland, I think, isn't really addressing it. And all that stuff is in San Francisco, and s- the San Francisco Occupy movement is pretty much dead. Yeah. Sure. And I'm told that a lot of, you know, from, from talking to pe- people I know who are affiliated with it and with Occupy Oakland, they just pretty much acquiesced to whatever the police told them to do, which was to leave and not come back. And that's what happened. But I don't understand why, if, if Occupy Oakland is going to start taking risks then why not? Why do it here? Why not do it where the problem is, which is in San well, Francisco? I think. I mean, there's kind of two things. I mean, the Occupy movement has gotten a lot broader than the the Wall Street stuff or the bank stuff. I mean, it's kind of you know. In its, I I reserve the right to go back to that because that's something else I want to talk about. All right, reserve it away. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I gotta put out there too that I have only been tangentially involved in the Occupy movement, so I'm. I'm not the best spokesman for it, but I'm trying trying to defend it here. Uh, I mean, I think 
you know, Occupy Oakland has certain priorities, right? You know, you can't take on everything that exists, you know? And so they're taking on what's the local, right? Like, you start where you're at, you know? And uh, I actually think it's a pretty good strategy. I mean, it's... And also, you know, as a matter of self-interest, what do you think would happen if a large group of people from Oakland wandered over to the San Francisco Financial District? Might be even worse than what happened in Oakland, you know? I mean, so there's that, too. But, uh, I mean... I don't think it's really losing the thread to focus on like your local, you know, local issues. That's kind of the big problem slash, I mean, some people think it's a big problem. Some people think it's great with the whole Occupy movement was that it, it, you know, the whole very tired line at this point that they never had a, a platform or explicit leadership or anything like that. That's, I think, an, an problem with the left. you, Everyone understands that all these issues are interconnected, but that doesn't actually make for a good strategy. So you have Occupy Oakland, which is taking care of very important local issues, but is also being understood as part of this broader Occupy movement, which, you know, the national line and even the regional line on that is that it's still about these other issues that they're no longer really addressing or addressing only tangentially. So there's this disconnect between what they're doing and what everyone else is doing that makes them seem more out of touch, more crazy, more radical for being radical's sake than for actually getting anything done. And I think, again, it's that problem of context. It's just, it hurts the overall movement, and so far I don't think any results have been seen on the ground. To be fair, I don't know if we're supposed to have seen any results just yet. But does that make sense? Like, Kinda. I, uh, I see where you're coming from, I just politely disagree. Um, I mean, my, I think the fundamental difference between us is I think that the strategies being used by Occupy overall and in specific groups are not going to work, and you disagree with that. So well, that's no, what it comes down to. Actually, I think where we're disagreeing is what's defined as working, you know? Because, um, I mean, in, in some ways, like, like the Occupy movement, I mean, this summer, everything was about where we need to cut and financial austerity and all these things. And I mean, the conversation has been dramatically shifted to income disparity. And I mean, you had the uh, re- other Republican candidates attacking Mitt Romney for being a venture capitalist. I mean, that is like, yeah, that's true. That's their dream. I mean, that I don't is know their if ideal, that can be you know? attributed to occupy. No, but I mean, it's just we, it, it's created an environment where. Even Republican presidential candidates feel the need to, like, attack, you know, vulture capitalism in, in its some... And in grand, you know, it's political grandstanding, which they don't believe. But, I mean, the fact that they feel the need they have to grandstand it shows the sort of feeling of the moment, right? And I think that alone is a pretty big success to change the national conversation from what social services can we cut to maybe the rich need to start to share a little bit, you know? I mean, that's a, that's no, I, a pretty I big think, success. I think... I think you're right, Jesse. I think it has changed the national dialogue about inequality. But I think, I know Chris, Chris's point that like maybe people who are even sympathetic to that message now or are becoming aware of that message, like when they see Oakland and what they see in the news, it's just totally turning them off. And it's not just, I don't know, it could be just skewed media coverage, but it's hard to imagine. You know how how much are they skewing this? You know when you see somebody burning the American flag on your sure. TV, it's, it's, it's like, but, I'm, oh wow, yeah, in, income is inequality, but is this what it means to you know demonstrate against that? You know, because you just see a bunch of anarchist kids essentially, right? And it's but it's too easy to sorry. dismiss. But yeah, 
Yeah. yeah, definitely. But it's kind of a classic, really a classic movement question you're getting into, right? Like, right, you know, yeah. how how much do you try to craft your message to the mainstream, but then at a certain point, you have no message if you're just trying to fit what the mainstream already wants to hear, right? And yeah. so, I mean, it's, you know, just as a fun little counter rebuttal, I'd point out, for many years now, the Democratic Party has been trying this strategy of let's not say anything too crazy and let's just kind of say what the mainstream wants to hear. And it has not been nearly as successful as the other party that's been like, let's say the craziest thing possible. And it, so, I mean, you know, there's a well, give and take that's, there, right? That's too much of a gross oversimplification. Yes, it's a hugely gross oversimplification. <laughs> but it was just somewhat tongue-in-cheek to point out. I mean, there's also the danger of that line of thinking of like, yeah, you know, I, oh, I we don't want to be too point. far out the mainstream, you know, and it's like, well, that, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously there's maybe, tension there. Maybe there needs to be like uh, the Occupy movements get splintered in a way where you have certain groups doing things that the other just most people can't accept. And so they have to decide, listen, we also don't like income inequality, but we don't want to be associated with these anarchist kids. So we're going to have to do something different. We can't just allow what's going on in Oakland to speak for our concerns. You know, I mean, that's the thing right. too. It's right. like people well, are like, at least somebody's out there protesting. But now there's a feeling of like, oh, they're doing that. But there's <laughs> also to, to bring it for full circle. I mean, it comes. It, a lot of this is going to come down to the weather. The reason Oakland has the shine right now is because people can organize here and not freeze. Once yeah, March definitely. and April, once the thaw comes, you're going to see a lot more voices, hopefully, in the Occupy movement. There's a chance that the winter killed off a lot of the movement's energy over the winter. I wouldn't be at all. I mean, people in the media who are sympathetic are already starting to say that, that, you know, because only the hardcore were right. left while everyone went home. the thaw hasn't happened yet, you know? I mean, right, yeah. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting. But Though I would say the other thing I wanted to say about the, you know, crazy radicals which I, I don't think occupy oakland is that crazy radical but you know different subject um but there's also the sense too that in the other way you know arturo's definitely right there can be these things and you know especially an image of guys and and, and other people like you know burning and and stomping on the american flag is probably not going to play well to a lot of people but there's also you know the other sense that you know having a very radical or at least perceived as radical part of the movement opens up a lot of room for the other like less is radical but still pretty far groups to operate in yeah which i also would grossly over simplistically refer to the republican party but you know the more the better i think historical analog is you know there's a lot of people have argued you know martin luther king was able to be so successful because people didn't want to deal with malcolm x right and so there's there's also the sort of way in which a much more radical challenge opens up a lot of space on that end of the spectrum um, for other people to get work done. True. I don't see it happening, though. Well, I mean, not a, definitely <laughs> I mean, not at the... You're, I'm right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's definitely not at the moment happening. But, you know, it's a fluid situation. Sure. And I, I think the movement could be doing more to encourage those kind of things. Like, there's a lot to admire with, with their style of leadership, but there's also a lot to to dislike about it. And one of those things is they're, they're taking way too long to get to that point. And when they get to that point, I mean, Occupy is going to get done in by internal stuff more than external stuff. I'm I'm pretty confident of that. Like even Oakland, which is really strong at the moment is eventually going to succumb to other people in Oakland saying the people involved in Occupy at the moment do not represent this neighborhood. Things like that. Um, that's, what's going to take down a lot of cities. So, 
to take the historical perspective, I mean, it's kind of hitting the classic problem that all, like, you know, sort of third, not really third party, but, like, kind of, you know, popular rebellion parties have formed. You know, and I'm thinking back, like, you know, there are a lot of, like, farmer rebellion parties, you know, like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, and they all face this kind of same thing because there's that, like, move between, like, getting co-opted by some larger movement like the Democratic Party or something, that's not really going to take up your line. But then also, the more you continue to operate as this, the, you know, the media cycle moves on, you know, and people fall out. And so there's, you know, I think you're right in the sense that they're pretty much in that moment now where it, it's not like it needs to go one way or the other, but there needs to be some sort of vision. Something crystallizing a little bit. Because in the middle of an election year cycle, once the Republican race comes down to how, I mean, that's already crazy enough to draw a lot of attention to it. Occupy is going to get lost in the shuffle. And one of the ways that's really easy to get your name back in the press is to do really stupid stuff. Yeah, and I'm sure. really worried that that's what's going to be left of that movement by the time, you know, April comes around, whenever it comes around. Um, and there's Possibly. another thing that's kind of the internal side of social movements is the people I've been talking to and the people I've been talking to, you talk to other people, you know, I'm not that connected to what's going on out here, but. A lot of the people in Oakland, involved with the Oakland movement, seem to have this pride right now, which is a mixed blessing. Because on the one hand, they, they feel like they're doing a lot of good work, and they're, they're creating the change they want to see, to be an inspirational poster about it. But they're also feeling like they're badass. <laughs> and they're more badass than San Francisco, and they're the most badass movement in California, and maybe the country. And that's one of those attitude things... I mean, I've been, I've seen that in so many different left politic organizations on any issue, and it never works. It's it's just a disaster in the making. Where it be, I, you have these ridiculous things to prove that you're really down with the movement, and and that's it's an identity thing, and it just becomes a mess so fast. I agree that that's not a positive attitude to have, but. I would be slow to characterize an entire movement based off of anecdotal evidence. That's all I'm going to point out. Fair enough, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying I've seen that in, again, I qual- <laughs> in just these people I've talked to, and that's it's understandable that attitude would be there. I mean, like like we yeah, no, totally. said, there it's really the only I mean really active Occupy movement right now, most right, of the yeah. geographical reasons. But, but the and leadership so structure also doesn't allow any checks on that, which is the concern, right? Uh, and again, I mean, I, I totally admit to my biases here. I, as kind of a sport, enjoy talking about Occupy <laughs> the way other people enjoy watching the presidential race or everything like that. And I, I really enjoy being sort of cynical about it and stuff like that. So, sure. Though I am move- a jerk, and I admit to it. Though the movement member in me says, hey, man, if you, if you got so many great ideas about where the movement should be going... Maybe you should be part of the movement, my man. To which I would say, maybe you should figure out a way that I can do that without having to. <laughs> oh <laughs> man! Ass See, off look at deal with a bunch of jerks. Look at you, and being, that's man. That's serious. Twenty first century American man. You should come to me, man. <laughs> maybe you got to bring some to the table. Maybe Occupy Oakland doing fine without you. You got to bring some to the table before they want you. Fair enough. Uh, now, now we're just getting into petty bickering. Which I, know, I was looking forward for, the for this. Podcast. I thought it was gonna be a fight. You know, you guys are all apologetic yeah. towards each other. Uh, That's a good point. I concede. Yes, it's a, 
It was a, it was a gentleman's oh, You're wrong. Thing. Are you happy now, Arturo? Yes. Exactly. Uh, right. <laughs> Eat something. We'll so just I edit will... that part out. Now, I want that to be in and bleeps because I, I like our use of bleeps because I want the uh, I want the listeners at home to be maybe wondering what kind of swear word you think I am. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think anyone's going to guess that one. So fill it in there, folks. One <laughs> syllable, crude remark. Leave your guesses in the comments. Uh, winner gets a prize. couple things to recommend that I've been dealing with recently because I'm teaching a, a music appreciation course and nice. I'm co-teaching it with a, another guy who's a record producer uh, a Grammy winning record producer oh, wow. so he handles the, the music and I do the sociological context for the music and it's all about each week is a, a different genre of contemporary American music and we just recently did a combined week on punk, hardcore and heavy metal which is great stuff, stuff I grew I up on. I'd like to attend that course. <laughs> um, but I came across some resources that are that are really cool if you're interested in either teaching that course or, or like doing sociology of music, or if you're just into exploring metal a little bit. There's a, there's a book called Extreme Metal by P- Keith Con Harris out of England that is really good, a little bit hard to find, but it's a, a spot-on analysis of the extreme metal scenes all around the globe, uh, from all the really Satanist stuff in Norway and Sweden to what's going on in Israel to what's going on in the rest of Europe and the U.S. relies heavily on Pierre Bourdieu's ideas. It's, it's a great new subculture analysis. Uh, so that's recommended. There's a classic heavy metal by Dina Weinstein, I think, which is the, the previous book. If you're interested in classic metal, 80s, Sabbath, anything like that, that's the book to go to. But there's also a series called Metal Evolution on, I guess, VH1 Classic. So it's probably in reruns now, but it's by this guy, Sam Dunn, who did Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, which was a documentary about what's going on with metal these days. And each episode is a different subgenre of heavy metal. And they're pretty informative, very succinct in what they're trying to say about it, interviews with a lot of really cool people. Uh, So it's worth checking out if you like to rock. I have a podcast to recommend. I'm teaching a social theory course as always, and we're doing Marx this week. And there's a good podcast called Planet Money. Most people know it. But they did an episode last week called The End of Manufacturing, uh, which was excellent. And it was about, um, as the title suggests, the end of manufacturing in the United States, where they kind of uncover that actually the U.S. kind of still manufactures a lot of stuff. But uh, it's become kind of a more automated factory world and so they go to kind of an old mill town uh maybe north south carolina maybe and uh they kind of just go to a plant that's been pretty much been replaced by machines with the exceptions of a few jobs and the new jobs require you know a lot of education which was not the case for your typical factory worker you know 30 40 years ago so it was pretty interesting in the whole kind of like Marx, you know, the de-skilling of labor. It kind of plays off on that issue, though. Here it's ironic because it's like workers who don't have any skills lose the jobs. And then um, those that are very, very educated uh, get new jobs. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty good stuff if you're into that stuff. Cool. Jesse, I know you're not teaching, but do you have any teaching? Are, are you teaching? I don't know, actually. I actually am teaching. Oh, my, 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 my bad. 
Um, I had nothing teaching related. I was actually going to go off of Chris's hardcore recommendation. Yes. Um, so this is actually something, a link that got forwarded to me a long time ago that I only recently was cleaning out my email and found. And uh, if folks are the fans of the hardcore punk, if you go to AmericanHardcoreBook.com slash Punk24, uh, this guy who wrote that book put together a playlist of 24 straight hours of hardcore. Um, nice. Recorded between 78 and 86, so like the glory years, yep. uh, representing like every scene you've ever seen. I mean, there's like tons of stuff from like Milwaukee and like Houston and just like, I mean, just like places where you were not really assuming that Phoenix is a bunch of tracks from. Like, uh, I mean, people ranging from like the luminaries, like your Husker Dues, your Black Flags, and your uh, Minor Threats and whatnot to like, you know, wasted youth seven seconds but also like really kind of nobodies you've never heard of who are big on their respective scene for a short period and uh man if you like the hardcore i will keep you busy for quite a while what was that called again hardcore books it was well it was american hardcore book.com because he, he's like wrote some book this guy there's also then, a documentary based on a book 24 yeah but then if you go to slash punk 24 after that it will take you to this 24 hours of hardcore uh, playlist and especially when you consider most of the tracks are between a minute and and a minute and a half it, oh it actually says it takes 911 tracks to get you 24 hours of hardcore yep you can follow social improv on twitter at Sociology Improv on Twitter is where you can find us. At Sociology Improv. Did you know, though, you could also... People could call us and leave voicemail for us? People should call us? That number, <laughs> if you wanted to call us and leave a message, 612-424-AGIL. Say it again. 612-424-AGIL. I'm expecting some sort of super dub remix of that now that you've set the bar high. Thank <laughs> you.